Spectre Cinema Club episode 174, friend of the show Dane McDonald gives Eyes Wide Shut 5 out of 5 stars saying, A man so emotionally devastated by a Nicole Kidman monologue that he ruins his life? Relatable. Hello, hello. Welcome to Spectre Cinema Club, a podcast obsessed with the horror subgenres. I am your host, Garrett McDowell, sitting across from me. It's Devon Taylor. Hello, hello. We are back for week two of Thrill Me, Fill Me month as mm-hmm. we uh, make our way through erotic thrillers this month. And uh, we got a big one on the board today. Oh, yeah. uh, we have Eyes Wide Shut, which is our first Stanley Kubrick film, um, first Nicole Kidman film, second Tom Cruise film. We come to this place for magic is all I have to say. How many AMC ad jokes will we make throughout this movie? Maybe or maybe just one. I, I, I'll throw the first one out there. Just get it out of the it'll, way. There'll be one in there somewhere. I mean, how can you not? But, uh, but it was uh, kind of surprising. That I was like, oh, yeah, we haven't. Because, I mean, Nicole Kidman, she's done quite a few genre things. Did you say first cruise? This is our second cruise. Okay, I thought you said first. I was like, we did interview, so yes. this would be number two. This but, is our yeah. first Kubrick, though. Yes, first Kubrick, which I'm excited about. I mean, honestly, he doesn't have too many films that we'd be able to talk about on the podcast. Mm. Obviously, The Shining, and I think somebody could make a oh, case. Oh, okay, never mind. Like, we did do The Shining. Full Metal point. Jacket. Well, then we're wrong on multiple fronts. But Full Metal Jacket and then like Paths of Glory, I could see like an argument for talking about like the horrors of war. Oh, but, I mean, 2001 and, and Clockwork Orange, I think, could fit in here snugly. Well, 2001, that would be also a different conversation. Uh, as well too maybe some sci-fi horror there yeah. but i think that this other than the shining would be like his most you know firmly in kind of the 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 horror realms and i think even clockwork orange you know would be up for debate yeah we we did the shining in season one before you mm-hmm. and then i know we almost did it for like a commentary so you know it might come up again at some point uh, maybe we should do the uh we should do the shining miniseries Ooh, i haven't seen I, that I, uh, hey that's the one that stephen king likes more well, apparently well i just i think I so. I just disagree with old, with old Papa Steve uh, over the you know just what is interesting in that story what I find interesting but that's a that's a discussion for another episode. Speaking speaking of miniseries though um because I was going to say this is also um one of the longer films that we've covered um where do you think this sits in for our long longest movies that we've covered here minus the Salem's Lot miniseries. Okay, I was going to ask. I would say this would be, because we did talk about The Wailing pretty recently, which I think was the longest. So I would say this is comfortably at number... I'm going to go with my gut and say three. Um, uh, Right now, this is at number two. <sighs> God, I'm always one off. Uh, it's, at, it's at number two right now, Um, uh, behind Bo is Afraid. Bo oh, okay. is Afraid recently took our... Um, this is longer than The Wailing? Uh, yes, oh, uh, not by much. Um, uh, so it goes, it goes, Bo's Afraid at uh, 179 minutes, and these are all including credits. Yeah. Uh, so that's the only one that we've touched. That's three hours. Yeah. Uh, we do have a three hour one uh, for April. Well, 179 up. minutes. We didn't quite, didn't quite touch it. Didn't quite, it, so. but we will, we will get to a, a very long one in April. Yes. Um, and then, uh, sorry about that, by the way. That was my pick for April's hey, month. Hey, I'm <laughs> all the in longest for it. movie on the podcast, and it will probably stay that way. I'm all in for it. <laughs> um, at Eyes Wide Shut, 150. 59 minutes um the wailing 156 minutes 
and then Suspiria, 18, mm. 152 minutes. That's a pretty big disparity from, you know, uh, 118 to 150. So we got we got to throw more like, you know, 210, you know, two, 215 kind of movies there, you know, as far as like yeah. two hours, 15 minutes. I feel like that's a good chunk of change. Yeah, we got a, we got a few two and a half hours yeah. in there. Um, uh, Saltburn was uh, up there as well. Uh, Saltburn, 131 minutes. So that's that, that's a two. There 10. you go. There that's you a, go. That's a two. I think we movie. even talked about that in that review you were like that's a good sweet spot for a movie you know it's longer than 90 so you can really sink your teeth into it but it doesn't quite overstay its welcome yes i i I do still stand by that i know a lot of people prefer the shorter ones but saltburn is actually uh there's a uh criticism that you had in saltburn that i have for this film so i'm intrigued to get into that um but before we do a few messages from the ouija board uh watching the watch list number three is Mm -hmm. out and available um if you are in the found footage tier or the creature feature tier um, uh, we had a little Criterion moment doing Eyes Without a Face and Cure. Uh, that was a really fun episode to do. Uh, we had a lot of uh, stuff in the recap as well. Yeah. In our January recap, uh, we had a lot of really fun stuff to talk about. Yeah, it was a fun uh, rainy day movie. It was absolutely downpour in yes. Los Angeles. And those two movies were like the perfect vibe for the day. And I th- I think that it was really clear in the conversation. You, too. And I you, was feeling it, man. And you do get the rain in the background. Yeah. I did the best I could in editing, but it's just there. And hey, it's uh, a little so- Seasoning for the episode. A little seasoning. And then uh, last week, we decided our movie commentary. Uh, we had uh, Joe flip a coin for us. Uh, so we are doing Bride of Chucky. Oh, yeah. Uh, which, um, again, that was uh, episode number three. I had the Colangelos on before Garrett was mm-hmm. here. Uh, so now, uh, and me and Garrett, we're both big Chucky guys. Yeah. So uh, this will be a super fun Th- one. This to is do. a nice hack that we can kind of double dip because of our Patreon and do, mm-hmm. pa- you know, movie reviews or other things that, you know, we've covered it before. Which, in that's way, that, that's kind of, uh, I've had that whenever I was like kind of looking at your watch list because that's what we did for this mm-hmm. month that uh, we had covered Cure in season one before you were there. Um, yeah. So it was nice to get your thoughts on it. So yeah, I'm probably going to use that hack a couple times yeah. if I don't know what to pick for your what watch was list. The Ravenous, episode. I think. I still haven't watched Ravenous yet because I was out that episode. I think I was sick yes. when you guys talked yes. about it, and I, I didn't get around to it. So maybe you'll include that next month as well. <laughs> yeah, we'll see. We'll see uh, which ones come up. But uh, yes, uh, patreon.com slash Spectre Cinema. Uh, enter the Phantom Zone for all sorts of bonus goodies for you. But now let's go ahead and get into the episode. Uh, and now let's go ahead and get into the film for today's episode. Eyes Wide Shut, released July 16th, 1999. This was written and directed by Stanley Kubrick. This was his last film. Uh, He did co-write this with uh, Frederick Raphael. Um, This was based off of the Austrian book uh, Trom Novelle, or also known as Dream Story or Rhapsody, a Dream Novel. Um, And uh, Kubrick actually purchased the rights to that uh, in 1960, uh, fairly early, and then held on to it for 35 years until he was uh, approaching his deathbed and goes, oh, yeah, I finally need to adapt that one. One more thing. One more thing before I go. (laughs) I I need to adapt that one book rights that I purchased 30 years ago. Yeah. Uh, I love that he's playing the long game with it. And I wonder how much, you know, did that story kind of stick with him throughout his career or, or was it, you know, like you were talking about where it was like, Oh yeah. Or, you know, back in the day was, you know, wh- what was this a case of, I'm, I don't have the skills, the money, the whatever that I have to make this vision or did it, was it just like, a, Oh, I forgot about that. Um, I mean, it's a little bit of 
all of those things because I know a lot of directors do this. Um, they'll buy it like early on because mm-hmm. as time goes on, the rights to those are going to increase. So sometimes they'll buy it at a lower price tag, even if they're not able to do it at that point. But yeah. they'll buy it just so that way they have the rights and they're able to at some point if mm-hmm. they want to. A lot of directors will do that. Uh, sometimes they will buy the rights and then never actually make the adaptation yeah but then maybe that's them being like haha well nobody else can do it <laughs> <laughs> it's like the warren Beatty dick tracy thing i don't know if you know about that but yes. that, that's a whole yes. you know internet wormhole thing that's hilarious <laughs> yes kind of similar uh yeah uh warren Beatty is holding on to those dick tracy rights yeah. for, for dear life god love him um at this uh the cinematography was done by larry smith and score done by joshua uh, and score done by jocelyn pook uh, edited by Nigel Galt, who uh, would be uh, kind of important considering uh, Kubrick was like very sick uh, throughout the editing process of this. So a lot of this did kind of fall on uh, Galt as to um, the way that it turned out. Mm-hmm. And um, Kubrick, um, he did get to see uh, and show a cut of it for the studios uh, six days before he died. Um, but Kubrick was also known for making lots of changes and edits all the way up until movie release. So, yeah. uh, so there's always been the speculation of how finished is this? How much of this is Kubrick's vision? Like if he had more time, would he have tinkered with it? Um, I mean, it was only released four months later. So, I mean, yeah, I'm sure he could have, you know, made some tinkerings if he really wanted to. Yeah. Um, But I think it does feel complete. And I think that's also where the runtime comes from, that there is like, well, this is the cut that Kubrick got to see. We don't want to change it too much afterwards. So, yeah, it's just kind of all there. I can't imagine, especially at this point in his career, Kubrick had already obviously made a name for himself was at the time definitely considered you know one of the all-time great american filmmakers so uh i don't blame him i don't i don't i don't blame the editor here uh maybe just going i'll let kubrick make the decision on this one what 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 he says goes but yeah it is one of those great kind of what ifs you know like what would this movie have become would it be drastically different um i think uh maybe maybe especially when you kind of read into what how Kubrick, you know, envisioned this movie, maybe a more lighthearted, more comedic approach rather than the kind of taut, dreamy, sexual thriller that this is. Uh, apparently, yes, Kubrick did think of this as a comedy oh. initially. Um, so maybe um, the editing might have been tighter to mm-hmm. make it snappier, maybe in that way. Because, I mean, I do laugh quite a bit throughout this film. I yeah. think I think Tom uh, Tom Cruise's Bill is uh, kind of a doofus in well, a very interesting <laughs> way. Yeah. Um, you know, he's, he's kind of got like puppy dog energy and it does make me laugh. But uh, I yes. could definitely see maybe some jokes being punched up a little bit um at this uh we're, we're not typically known for a bunch of background info stuff just because i like to like focus on you know i don't want it to impede me too much but this is a film with lots of lore and oh, yeah we would be uh uh, uh remiss remissed, uh to not point a few things out so did you know this had a world record uh, um, i did not for the longest continuous film production, um, 400 days in total for the production, yeah. um, with 46 weeks being unbroken shooting. Um, I don't know how that works, though, if 46 weeks, because there's 52 weeks in a year. Three, so, so I don't understand what they mean by longest continuous film production if you're not filming. I, I mean, I, I guess, yes, you are working on other things. I think it would be then, like the pre and pros, uh, post-production, not just principal photography, you know. But. I mean, I guess. And then because I guess that's why like something like Boyhood isn't nominated because they would do like little bits at a time over maybe. years. Yeah. 
Um, and so that's why that doesn't quali- qualify. But yeah, I mean, Kubrick has always been a filmmaker that's been very notorious, especially in the case of The Shining, of, of being a meticulous attention to detail filmmaker. And a lot of that results in 80, you know, 100 takes of one scene uh, and he'll end up, you know, choosing the first you know the first one <laughs> like, 95 takes of yeah. uh tom cruise walking through a doorway in yeah. one of the scenes in here um and kubrick yeah with his attention to detail and wanting lots of control he uh kept a lot smaller crews mm-hmm. uh, compared to most other directors because he would also be you know doing the final touches on the production and the set design himself like anything that's in frame in the camera he mm-hmm. wants to make sure uh he has a, a hand in it um it, so this was uh not uh this takes place in new york not shot in New York. Um, the uh, they recreated Greenwich Village uh, in a studio um, setting. Um, do you know why most of this was shot in England? Um, I would say that it's probably because Kubrick is a control freak. I think that he probably wanted, you know, uh, far more control than New York would allow him, like shooting on location. If I had to guess, I mean, uh, yeah, that that is the <laughs> that I mean that would probably be the plausible way uh, looking at it from a director's standpoint. But uh, apparently. Kubrick was scared of flying. Oh, I didn't know that. So he, know. <laughs> he did not want to do the the flying back and That's forth. That's probably what he told everybody. You know, he told everybody, he's like, no, I just want to have complete creative control. Yeah, but yeah. in reality, he was like, I don't want to get on that fucking plane, <laughs> man. I won't do it. <laughs> Which is hilarious. Of all the horrors he's created, uh, one thing that he's scared of is yeah. flying. But uh, yeah, even uh, Nicole Kidman and Tom Cruise kind of going into this film had this open-ended contract uh, that would just allow them to work on this film and until Kubrick essentially was done. Again, just showing that Kubrick was a filmmaker, you know, to be reckoned with. He's one of the greats, um, even to his last days. Yeah, and and he, again, like, he made this because he thought the book, he bought the rights because he thought the book was, like, this incredible piece of text. He thought it was one of the best books he had ever written uh, or that he had ever read. Um, and he did make a few key changes, though. Um, obviously, we're not readers. We didn't even know. I didn't even know this was based off a book originally. Mm-hmm. Um, but um, one key difference is um, because this was written by Arthur Schnitzler, um, who, you. as you can tell by that last name, Jewish man, mm-hmm. and a lot of um, uh, Bill's character in it uh, had a different name in the book, but uh, like a lot of that character was also Jewish. So mm-hmm. like, so like the scenes of like the hecklers later when they're like, uh, you know, yeah. giving homophobic slurs, they were actually like anti-Semitic, like anti-Jewish slurs in that. So um, I find that fascinating considering this is also like a seminal Christmas movie. Yeah. Um, you know, Christmas lights and about 75% of the shots in yeah. this film. It is the season. Um, yeah. So, and the, the last uh, little interesting thing that I saw um, was uh, Bill Harford's last name is an homage to Harrison Ford because that was the inspo for Bill's personality when they were uh, casting the role. I could see like a young Harrison Ford doing this. I mean, even Harrison Ford in 1999, I, I think that he could he could pull this off. Not quite as young and spry and sexy as he was back in the day, but uh, I could see a young Harrison Ford. In I mean, this role, I absolutely. see I see a little bit of it, or or maybe not even seeing Harrison Ford, but I can see Tom Cruise channeling some of that young Harrison Ford energy a yeah. smidge in certain scenes like in the scenes where he is like trying to put on a more confident front mm-hmm. he does kind of feel that way actually the last fun fact i did find was uh, right before you got here um and this was a uh, new information uh, that only came out uh not too long ago um but the um mysterious woman that you know uh you know uh 
uh, offers herself up for Bill during the yeah. ritual and yeah. whatnot. Um, was uh, the voice was dubbed because the actress uh, Abigail Good uh, couldn't do a American accent because a lot of the actors in this are mm-hmm. British, minus Tom Cruise yes. and Nicole Kidman. She's Australian. Um, but uh, she couldn't do an American accent. So after Kubrick passed, uh, there uh, they did uh, dub this character. Do you know who did the voice? I saw it as well. It's Kate Blanchett. Uh, okay, you did. <laughs> Kate Blanchett. Uh, I mean, I mean, of course, if you're gonna have a you know warm, I mean, yeah. sexual, uh, yet mischievous voice to you know lead him through this party and everything, and like bring the extra drama to it. Like I thought that was really neat. Yeah, if, if I need anyone to call out into in the middle of a sex orgy to you know <laughs> proclaim that I I am saved, uh, let it be Kate Blanchett, please, please, please do. Um, so at the box office, this did 162.1 million on a 65, uh, 65 million dollar budget. Um, so did not do very well financially. I mean, it did double its budget back, but they usually say you want to triple it. From to what I understand, actually bring in. Despite that fact, though, uh, this was, I believe, Stanley Kubrick's first film to be number one at the box office. So oh, it was still kind of like a success by his standards in a weird way. I mean, yeah, that that actually makes a lot of sense. Um, it also did pretty well on uh, physical media as yeah. well. Um, this was like kind of early boom of DVDs oh, yeah. uh, happening. I wonder if uh, the VHS is a, a two VHS one for this. I mean, this is a long one. I maybe, wonder. maybe. I, I, I haven't seen it in VHS form, so I'm not sure. I want to know. Uh, this probably was, I imagine, a pretty like coveted VHS DVD for like the you know the the youngins of the era. Oh, I could yeah. I could see this being one of like oh let me steal Dad's copy of Eyes Wide Shut on VHS. <laughs> oh yeah. Um, what do you think uh, the Rotten Tomatoes critics have this sitting at? Um, I think that this is going to be one of those Rotten Tomatoes situations to where the rev- the the score that we have now is not as reflective of what it was, I would say, but they probably meet in the middle somewhere. So I'm going to say like a 72%. It's a 76% okay. on a 160 reviews, okay. and this is still pretty early on. I don't even know if Rotten Tomatoes was established quite yet, but it was yeah. getting close Certainly, so so this yeah, is still early internet days for but, sure. But so I'm so I'm sure it's not as like data as like now it being like current critics like going yep. back and retroactively adding mm-hmm. their reviews. I'm sure there was this was more closer like this was probably like critics in like the 2004-2005 era that Maybe. were kind of yeah. filling out their uh, mm-hmm. Rotten Tomatoes resumes. Uh, what do you think the average rating is over on Letterboxd? Um, I think it's probably about the same. I think this is a pretty divisive movie, so I would say like a 3.7, 3.7. Well, so I did see that this film is in the Letterboxd uh, 200 most popular okay. uh, titles. It is on that list. That's surprising. Um, and it has a 4.0 wow. out of 5. I mean, that's pretty good. That's I, pretty good I, like, for, yeah, for that, this type of film. Uh, higher than I thought it would be. Again, this is like a controversial film, one that uh, I would say asks a lot of the audience, and we'll get into that uh, as well. So I, I think 4.0 is not bad at all. Yeah, so not too shabby. Um, but this was your choice for mm-hmm. Erotic Thrillers Month. Uh, so what made you want to talk about it today? Um, I'm a big Stanley Kubrick uh, fan. I really love uh, a lot of the films that he's made. Uh, and I think that he really just went out with a bang with this one. I think that this is an unconventional movie. I think it's unconventional for the genre. I think it's unconventional in the ways that it portrays sex and gender roles, especially uh, of the time period. 
Um, I love the feeling of this movie. You're talking about like when we were watching Saltburn, you kind of like returning to the world of this movie. I find the world of this film oddly comfortable. You'd think it would be the opposite, that it's like gross and weird, but it's like it's very dreamlike and there's, you know, blue light everywhere and Christmas lights. It's just it's a real vibe. Uh, But I love the journey that the characters go on. Uh, It's obviously a wild and a crazy story, um, but I think, as always, Kubrick really has um, something fascinating to tell. I am, I would say, relatively a bit of a novice when it comes to this subgenre, but I think that even still, uh, I think a lot of people would agree that this is one of the, you know, great erotic thrillers. Interesting. So I still have a few Kubrick films I have not seen. I haven't seen Barry Lyndon. I haven't seen Dr. Strangelove. That's great. Um. Um, I mean, I guess those are really the only like two prominent ones I've seen, like mm. most of the other prominent ones. But um, uh, this one I came to pretty late. I don't think I watched it for the first time until it was either last Christmas or the Christmas before that. It oh. was one of in, in the past two years. Mm-hmm. Um, actually, I think it was last year because I was going through a lot of erotic like tw- thrillers. Like twenty twenty three or twenty. I guess it would have been twenty twenty two. Okay, December is whenever I watched this. Gotcha. Um, and it kind of kicked off uh, the earlier part of 2023. I was spending a lot of time going through erotic thrillers and pretty much why I want to eventually do a whole month on them. Mm-hmm. And um, interestingly enough, again, like not to bring up Saltburn once again, but I guess we're going to a few more times. But like uh, the amount of people that were like going, oh, you think this is crazy and shocking? Like I could say the same thing to I don't think this movie is all that crazy or shocking. I think we have. Yeah, we have some sex stuff. There's a few uh, erotic scenes in here, but, like, Mm -hmm. I don't think this movie is really all that crazy as far as, like, especially compared to erotic thrillers, which I don't think Kubrick was making this to be uh, an erotic thriller, at least in, like, the shadow of, like, we were talking about, like, the early 90s, late 80s style ones. He wasn't trying to make that kind of erotic thriller, but this, just because of some of the subject matter, just because it does happen to be about you know sexual desires but it does have a mystery angle to it Mm -hmm. i think it just kind of naturally happens to fall in the erotic thrillers uh genre but compared to a lot of other ones it's pretty tame as far as i think some of the visuals i think as far as some of the subject matter itself Uh, not that i don't find it compelling but i also don't find it uh as you know wild or as controversial or provocative as a lot of other erotic thrillers that i would say Mm -hmm. but not to say that this isn't a better film than those erotic thrillers yeah if that if that makes sense um so and i almost kind of wonder i'm like is this uh one of those uh instances people hold this film a little bit higher because it was his last film Like if this wasn't made literally as he's dying and then, you know, finished up a week before he died, would people, you know, hold this as in kind of high regard because there is so much lore behind this film now as well. So uh, so I find the legacy of this film interesting because I think it's good. I don't love it. I don't think it's like super great. I think uh, the ideas were a lot more clear to me uh, this time around i did bump my score up a smidge Mm -hmm. um but at the same time i still kind of left this not blown away but just kind of been like okay it's kind of more clear to me now like what the whole idea is behind this film well i think it's fascinating to hear you talk about like kind of the fact that this movie was so shocking and this movie was so you know uh so crazy for its day I personally don't necessarily see that as like a, a criticism of the film. I think it is more of just like kind of a cultural 
bookmark, you know, of just mm-hmm. where we were at at any given time with any given movie, Jaws or Psycho or The Exorcist or whatever. There's always going to be things where you go back and even something like Psycho, you watch that now and you're like, this was what people were, you know, all up in exactly. arms about. And exactly. Of course, and by modern standards, yeah, you can go, I could pull up videos way more graphic than anything shown in this movie in two seconds mm-hmm. on my phone. You know, that's just the kind of the world that we that we live in nowadays. But I do think that what is so fascinating about this film for me is what's at stake for these characters like what is going on with them internally and the fact that for them what happens in this film is is completely earth-shattering but not for the obvious reasons but for other Mm -hmm. reasons too like there's a really great scene um and we i don't know if you want to go ahead and like start diving on into the movie but it's after we have that that you know, the very famous orgy scene. Tom Cruise is in his doctor's office and he's thinking about the story that his wife told him about wanting to fuck a guy from like two years ago. And it's like, you just went to this sex orgy, saw that this, you know, pro- prostitute that you were hooking up with got killed and you're still on your, your wife gets horny sometimes thing, you know? So I think that this film is, um, all, all, all that to say it is shocking and it is groundbreaking for the, characters as well as i think just societally we're still to this day kind of grappling with the idea of female sexuality and the fact that women can get horny too i think for 1999 standards i would say that this is about par for the course is what was considered taboo at the time oh yeah i'm not saying that it that i'm not saying that as a criticism but Mm -hmm. i'm saying it for the the context of that Sure. expectations obviously still do dictate you the, know their reputation cer- precedes this certain movie, ways sure. in the way that we're feeling and and it also you know different in a way that like i've been living in la for five you know six years now i almost don't really believe in monogamy anymore you know yeah. like when you've kind of been exposed to like more people being you know in open relationships and them being kind of uh you know because like you know you can be in love with somebody but like how much does the sexuality does that you know how much of it is just sexual feelings and Mm -hmm. how much of it is the romantic feelings and you can learn that there's kind of a difference between that like you can still be attracted to multiple people and think about having sex with multiple people but still be in love with your primary partner yeah you know and that not be a uh, a thing of infidelity where that's like kind of half the thing in this movie is are is infidelity of the mind just as bad as actually cheating and like in 1999 like yeah that's a kind of more of a hard question to answer versus now i'm like no like not at all really of <laughs> you course know? yeah and I, I think that that is precisely the point and i think that that's why that's why this movie has aged like fine wine is that as us as a society gets more sexually liberated as like women's liberation has improved not by much but it has improved since 1999 um i like to think that this movie uh and you know the same with clockwork orange the same with paths of glory same with dr strangelove you know so many of kubrick's films at the time obviously had its relevancy but when you go back in a more reflexive way and can see what he was talking about and the relevancy of it today i think that that's what makes kubrick's movies so powerful is i can go back and watch dr strangelove and i could be like did they release this fucking yesterday like it feels like it is you know hot off the press oh no i mean kubrick is one of those people that he was always yeah 20 years ahead of Mm -hmm. the time like because i think because i do think watching it now there's more conversation to have about it than when it first came out because when it first came out we didn't even have like a lot of these you know uh the the vocabulary wasn't as known to talk about these subjects as we have them 
them now. Or, or and, that it was just the shocking, and the mm-hmm. shock, the, the shock value just gets in the way of those conversations to where it's just like you can only think about the orgy, you know, rich sex party and you can't even think about what the film is actually trying to communicate. Yeah. And I, I find it, you know, fascinating watching both of them because I, I know uh, a lot of people like to make Bill's character kind of out, out to almost be like the yeah. uh, not not antagonist, but a, you know, the the. Not a great guy, you know? He's not a great guy. <laughs> I would say he's, like, not a great guy, but it's, like, he's also not a... He's also not, like... He's not a great guy, but he's not a bad guy either. Like, I think both of them have these desires that are, like, just purely human. Like, both of them. Mm. Like, you know, in what they are, like, clearly looking for, uh, you know, he is just misguided. Like, you know, yeah. like, Nicole Kim, and she's just like, I am horny. And he's like... And Bill's like, I mean, I'm kind of horny, but I also just need some excitement in my life. He's bored yeah. is what he is, you know? So it's like they both kind of have these, like, very human, uh, you know, emotions that they're kind of going through. It's just the fact that we spend so much more time with Bill um, that they're kind of contrasted a little bit differently. Um, so let's go ahead and hit a 60-second synopsis before we break down the subgenres. Mm-hmm. Are you ready? I, I, can, I think I can figure it out. All right. I got you here on the clock in three, two, one. Go. All right, we got Dr. Tom Cruise, uh, and he is uh, married uh, in a happy marriage to Miss Nicole Kidman, wh- whatever their characters' names are. Uh, but they are kind of these rich, uh, richer socialite kind of figures in uh, New York City. Uh, they go to this party where they meet some uh, new and familiar friends, uh, which kind of begins this on this journey of sexual liberation to where um, Nicole, Kidman, uh, Nicole Kidman's character confronts um, Cruz about his actions during the party, which leads her to tell him this story about her fantasizing about this guy, you know, one summer years ago, um, which kind of rocks Cruz's world. So he walks around the streets of New York, gets into lots of trouble and angst, which includes um, getting uh, somewhat not invited or inviting himself into this uh, rich people sex orgy party as as rich people do um, and this kind uh, of uh, begins to unwind his life by the thread Un- unwind his life by the thread yeah <laughs> unwind his life <laughs> by the thread. yes yeah we're, you get I, what i'm saying I, yeah. I get what you're i get what you're going for there um yeah it is you know um this type of odyssey uh, of a movie where he's just like kind of stumbling from one thing into another and kind of going uh deeper into you know, what is actually going on mm-hmm. in the world around him versus like kind of what they seem to be, um, which I found interesting more on this uh, second time around. And um, and so let's go ahead and uh, get into our subgenres here. Um, so obviously talking erotic thrillers, mm-hmm. I feel like mystery is also just going to be kind of involved in almost all of these. Yeah. Uh, but this one does kind of go in like the uh, the mystery noir uh, angle where it's like you know Tom Cruise he's and you know uh, uh, interacting with all these interesting char- side characters along the way, that, right? You know, deep in certain things, and uh, instead of him being a uh, detective, uh, he's just a doctor, but he's flashing his Hilarious. doctor's license Hilarious. around Hilarious. as if he's a yeah. cop. He does it at <laughs> no less than like six times in yes, this movie. He does. does it everywhere. <laughs> Sometimes it's needed. Like he goes to the hospital and like needs to see the corpse. Sure, flash that guy gets you in but, the door. But when you're goes showing the host, regular fucking yeah. guy, he's like, "Excuse me, I'm a doctor," and they're like, 
Okay, great. But it, it's funny how it works for him, where like people are kind of charmed by it. it. Like it's like he hypnotizes them with this badge of authority. I kind of like it. No, it's so silly. Like that's where again, like where some of the comedy comes in. He's in a diner, yeah, showing her that he's a doctor, and she goes, "Yeah, okay." <laughs> Anyways, and um, and the scene with him and uh, Alan Cumming, the the uh, hotel manager, is right? So fucking funny. Um, uh, but yeah, so so there's like a little bit of a mystery noir there, and then uh, we have a uh, again some more marriage drama, infidelity. Mm-hmm. Uh, again, I think is pretty much gonna come up in every film this uh this month. Uh, what, what do you got? Yeah, definitely uh, the infidelity angle. It's not quite like an eat the rich movie, but it's certainly about rich folk and certainly about class. But I don't think that it is necessarily this. Um, story of class struggle it's mostly about rich people navigating the world of rich people and just you know kind of uncovering the the you know true uh, craziness that's kind of lingering under the surface but I think yeah certainly the drama certainly the the mystery I would say would be the uh, kind of the, the biggest subgenres for me um, but it, it is also a very very sexy movie very very steamy movie um, as far as like my my four pillars of erotic thrillers, yeah. Oh shit, I didn't realize that wrong. Oh, bars, <laughs> bars. Um, so so as far as like where those things kind of go, um, even though like yeah, we get a we get a sex orgy, but it's really it's like I don't know. It's like I think even I like the guy getting used as a table. I mean, I think <laughs> I, I looked at it. It's like eleven, twelve minutes, and I'm like, you know, yeah. cut you, down to maintain the R rating. Apparently, apparently, yeah. which yeah, which is unfortunate. I would definitely because I want to see more of this. Like, because mm-hmm. like I really want to actually like him spend time with this, you know, in yeah. this atmosphere yeah. and see sure. how it changes. Sure, sure. And see, I, I want to see how it <laughs> changes dog. Bill's dog. character <laughs> growth for the uh, character growth for the for the for the character arc. The, the character growth in his pants. That is. <laughs> Ooh. Um, but you know, because I I did see like certain interesting things in there, but the f- movie itself I don't find super sexy. Like, mm. I, there's a, there's a couple scenes where it's like like uh it's a very kind of short, but like uh the scene where uh Bill and Alice are making out and she's watching them in the mirror. I'm like, ooh, that's hot because yeah. I do that. Like, I totally get it. Yeah. Um, and so like as uh, you know, little things like that. But then like because then whenever we're seeing. Uh, these uh, you know, these flashes that Bill gets of this, you know, hypothetical situation with his wife and the and the uh, crew mm-hmm. person. Mm-hmm. Um, it's like shown very stylized and stuff, so it's not meant to be sexy. It's him. It's him having a nightmare. It's like in this like blue filter with these like kind of weird uh, time it, it, time shifts it's, to it's it. It's pretty steamy in those. I mean, yes. fantasies he's having. I mean, it's, I, I it's think Nicole the juxtaposition. Kidman, of course, it's gonna be sexy. The ju- juxtaposition, I think, is interesting too. Of like when he is thinking about these. <laughs> The fact that he is like going throughout his day to day or he's at work or something. I think that's where a bit of the sexiness comes from is that he is just kind of thinking about his wife getting plowed by some other guy. You know, yeah, it's kind of in a pathetic way. But I also wonder if, you know, at what point is he kind of, you know, is that part of his struggle? Is he kind of like, why do I like this? No, you know, know, that's exactly what it is. He he does like it. He doesn't want to admit that he likes it, you know, and like that is the struggle. Yeah. Which is, again, super funny because like they show it and yeah. Yes, it is steamy because mm-hmm. it's fucking Nicole Kidman. How can it not be? But yeah. then whenever you it, like there's one where like she's like, you know, really getting it. And then it just cuts to him. and He's like slumped back in his like office chair. Just like it, he looks like like uh, Patrick Bateman for a moment, yeah. which, hey, his uh, it comes back around they have the same haircut. Well, they were that was an uh, inspiration for uh, uh, 
Uh, I'll get to that next uh, uh, next month. Oh, I didn't we know this. About it. I didn't know this. That's, uh, I, that makes sense. Then. I'll, br- I'll bring this fun now. fact I back know, up. I know where you're headed for it. But yeah. um, uh, we'll put a pin in that fun fact <laughs> for for like four episodes, guys. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, but uh, but yeah, so it's like I don't know. Like I I do find like yes, the the orgy stuff and stuff is hot, but mm-hmm. at the same time, it's n- the the film doesn't have a sexy coat across it in general. Like yeah. it's it's more dreamy. Uh, in a way, and it in and that dreamlikeness is still alluring, but not in a sexual way for me. I'm just like kind of like yeah. because it is this like really it's like it depending on what is you know actually you know what is connected and what's not. This really is kind of just like mundane stuff, uh, but it's you know being uh yeah. built out you know because it's in this dramatic fashion in this fantasy fashion that they are both wanting to admit to each other that they have that it's like hey and and that's again totally cool like mm-hmm. it, uh, it, like that's and for some other people they would be having that those flashes and they'd be fucking beaten off at their desk to it <laughs> you know because they're like oh yeah like you know like the idea of somebody else wanting yeah you know my partner you know is attractive for certain people but for others it's you know depending on uh confidence and just the way that you view your relationship it's the opposite for certain people and he's he's trying to get to the other side he, he's trying to get to the acceptable side but his just you know you know regular way uh white male cis cishet straightness you know yeah. gets in the way of him you know just you know allowing himself to like open up to the ideas of these kind of kinky uh, scenarios which is precisely the meaning of the title is this eyes wide shut that he is like forcing himself to like squeeze his eyes shut this obviously very paradoxical kind of title but he it's about him living his entire life navigating the world where his eyes are now kind of wide open to what it looks like to break those societal mm-hmm. and kind of gender norms. And that's the end of the movie. Nicole Kidman literally tells him our eyes are now open. So his eyes were uh, you know, shut. Now this is uh, a revelatory kind of experience for him. It's enlightening. He's sort of been kind of baptized on the other side of that. There's obviously theories about how the daughter and all of that fits into that from like a plot kind of perspective. Mm-hmm. But I think as far as the characters, yeah, it's uh, you're exactly right. It's about these two people who are forcing themselves to kind of bend to these societal and gender norms and not having these questions about what they're actually desiring, what they're thinking about, what they're dreaming about, what they're dreaming their other partner is doing, you know, like uh, all of these thoughts and conversations that they're having, no matter how taboo. And to put a pin in the sexiness, I think that is what makes this movie sexy for me is the taboo kind of unspokenness of it all. The fact that it is something that these two characters are kind of thinking more independently but not sharing with with each other i I think that kind of unknowingness is is kind of attractive oh i mean and that's you know what uh you know is kind of leads to like almost a sweet ending i was Mm -hmm. like as far as erotic thrillers go this is maybe one of the sweeter endings because they do come to that realization like okay hey we can admit these things to each other we have these feelings we've worked it out in our own separate ways Mm -hmm. now let's come back together and we're gonna continue on and uh yeah i really love the line the important thing is that we're awake now um i thought was uh really really poetic for the title of it because like the the title of the movie like you know kind of feels like that juxtaposition of our real life to our dream life you know you like you are awake and you're living yeah but if your eyes are closed to the you know things around you or the things that you're willing to admit to yourself that you see 
or the things that you feel, uh, then you are still kind of eyes wide shut at that point. Um, because the film does, you know, kind of wholeheartedly deal with just underlying desires, you know, again, like, you know, she's, she's, uh, you know, so let's, let's, uh, talk about the, uh, the, the, uh, smoking scene, uh, which I, I think is like the, that's like the precursor that starts the chain of events throughout yeah. the movie. Like, uh, and then Nicole like, Kidman gets totally geeked off of <laughs> off the smoke and then just completely lets the cat out of the bag. Alice, <laughs> Alice greens out and she is one of the worst type of stoners to smoke with. Like just gets super aggressive the, and confrontational. <laughs> you're, you're asking, you're, you're asking too many conflicting questions. The scenarios are out of control. Like yeah. you're doing too much, Alice, but. <laughs> Um, it is a very interesting kind of setting of the table for it where yeah. she is she's asking him about like, oh, I saw you with those two girls. What do you think they were wanting from you? Um, and in the film, we see like the different scenarios playing out. He's walking with these like two models uh, and she's dancing with this uh, Hungarian guy uh yeah uh just i don't know maybe a poet or something he, he seems the, like the fella she's dancing with yeah yeah um so and so she's they're challenging each other on asking about these scenarios mm-hmm. and i find it fascinating because like i've like watch it and her and uh the hungarians interaction feels more intimate it feels more sensual yeah uh partially for me because i feel like just dancing always is like well they're pretty uh, close like their noses are practically touching a lot of close face talking in this movie can do it the breath alone come on throughout the movie there's lots of people talking right in each other's faces yeah um you know wanting to kiss but not and it's like Mm -hmm. hers kind of plays more sensual where like he's with these girls that are obviously interested in him but he's like such a dope and like kind of oblivious to it that is well like, see i don't know if it's oblivious i read it as he knows like i think throughout the film he is constantly shown what he could get like i think even the the little the daughter in the the costume shop the way that she kind of lures after him i think throughout the film he knows what is sort of attainable for him or what he could achieve even oh, totally. from like a status status level he's like i feel like i could be in this room i just didn't have the membership card and i think throughout the entire film it's him asking these questions of like i'm staying with my wife but look at all of these other options that i have out here and so i don't read it as obliviousness i kind of read it as like oh you're so cute like well, like kind like of patting them on the head well you know? it, it, that's i feel like that's his arc though it's him discovering i feel like at that moment it's like he does get it but at the same time he's mm. not truly like wrapping his head around it. and that's when uh alice during this conversation yeah. challenges him on like oh you wouldn't fuck them because because he's like because you i'm married to you i love you and then she's like okay so you wouldn't fuck them because of marriage not yeah. because it's not what you actually want and yeah. him, and so that's that's the basis <laughs> yeah. for his journey for the movie is him coming into these scenarios where he's admitting to himself like mm-hmm. oh yes like if i wanted to truly do this i would do it because yeah. that's what her story is yeah in her mind she literally says like or like she's telling the story and she goes if he would have like made a move on me I would have dropped everything and did it. Like yeah. she straight up admits that like she 100% would have done it. Yeah. And I find that fascinating. Like, is that cheating quote unquote in a way, you know, like admitting that you, even though if you don't actually act on it, but admitting that you totally would mm-hmm. is interesting. So again, like there's this exploration throughout the film of like, you know, are these, you know, are thoughts just as powerful as you actually doing the actions? Right. Cause like, throughout the film like you said he sees these moments of where 
uh, he could seduce somebody, or he does even at, in certain degrees in the later half. Mm-hmm. Um, but then he never, you know, allows it to happen except for like that one time he like kisses like the one. Uh, well, Marion kisses him. I don't count that. But later on, he does like kiss uh, the yeah. roommate. Yeah, yeah. But He's like got that's, but that's about it though. As well, yeah. yeah, yeah. I mean, the, the the whole movie is asking these questions of <laughs> you know where do you draw the line in a relationship? And I think that the that is just up to the person, up to the couple. But I love that. Kubrick back in 99 is exploring these things, exploring these questions. And I think, yeah, that that pivotal scene between the two of them is one, like the only scene that we really get where they get to like really chew the scenery and like have a extended conversation between the two of them. There, there, oh, there's yeah. just not that many. Nicole Kidman's really not in a lot of this yeah, movie. Yeah. <laughs> She's mostly home with the daughter, which I'm sure we'll also, we'll also talk about, but I love that that scene, especially knowing what we know about that character on a rewatch with the first time you watch it, it does seem like, She's jealous. She's just like starting an argument just to start one. But when you rewatch it, knowing that this is this deep desire that she has, it takes on a whole new meaning because it feels like she's I'm tr- like it feels like she's trying to understand like what he is genuinely thinking, not what he kind of what what he thinks she wants to hear. And so trying to you kind of watch her trying to break all of that and break mm-hmm. all of the artifice. And she's like, tell me, did you want to fuck those girls or not? Like, I'm not going to be mad. You know, it seems like a, a conversation that she's been wanting to have with him, but, you know, has never really understood how they could go about it. But the fact that he says, like, women don't really think of those kind of things, yeah. then the conversation totally changes. <laughs> that's where and she's like, wrong. <laughs> oh, they don't? Oh, they don't think of those kind of things? Well, here you go. And that's where she drops that big bombshell on him. Oh, that's a, that's exactly where he fucks up because, and that's where in the movie it's the inverse. Like, she is the one that is, like, kind of admitting to these more... Yeah primally sensual desires and throughout the film he is having these moments Mm -hmm. but again i don't think the like he's not searching for these sexual connections he's just kind of looking for the thrill of it he likes the temptation but he has no like you know like like that's where he like gets off on it more than if he actually would sexually engage with any of these Mm -hmm. people so again yes it is them uh trying to understand each other's kinks and they need to have a very frank conversation about it um, and this uh, stone conversation was not the way to go about it. Uh, if you're gonna yeah. if you're gonna start uh, you know exploring your uh, kinks with your partner, setting boundaries and whatnot. But hey, yeah. that all could have been avoided, and maybe he wouldn't have ended up at this uh, sex dungeon. Uh, which again, I like the structure of this film. Uh, and again, like it mm-hmm. is this you know odyssey, but it takes place over like four days really like it's a, a very short kind of time frame but like most of it is in like a 24 hour like yeah ch- well because yeah. they they have the night where they go out to the party mm-hmm. and then it's the next day when he goes yeah, out yeah has his whole cycle see, and yeah. then there's like a day or two follow-up yeah, after yeah, so yeah. it's like it's like three or four days um and i like the way that it you know kind of unfolds in um it, you know he he uh just is he gets in the fight he ends up going out and about, and he happens uh, that the uh, Nick guy, mm-hmm. Nick, Nick Nightingale, uh, tell, told him at the party where he was going to be playing. So he yeah. goes there, and then he meets up with him because they got into a fight, mm-hmm. and that leads him on the night that he happens to have another gig later that night at this secret thing, and that's what gets yeah. him involved. Well, he also know? So goes it's like, I like the way that it just, like, he just kind of 
stumbles deeper into the rabbit hole. Yeah, and I, I think that that is one of my favorite things, too, is this uh, kind of escalation of debauchery, I think is like a nice way to put it, is that he leaves uh, because he gets a house call that, like, somebody that he knows, you know, their dad died. And so he goes over there to, you know, do a do his job. He ends up getting uh, kind of, uh, this woman puts the moves on him and, and confesses her love for him, to which he's, like, totally taken aback and leaves immediately picks up a prostitute doesn't re- doesn't really do anything and then meets Nick and then you know and, and then goes to the costume shop to where there's this a little threesome sex party happening there with this like young teenage girl and as the film goes on the again the debauchery kind of escalates and what he is sort of used to at that time starts to kind of grow and grow you know like his his understanding of what sex is becomes just wilder and crazier and more broad throughout the film to where it starts off and it's just his very heteronormative relationship with my wife to where at the end of it it's like oh yeah rich people are fucking in mansions and fucking on top of each other and you know dancing naked and all of this stuff so he does really go on this growth of understanding what sex is and what sex can be yeah um the the book is again set in Austria versus uh, Kubrick changing this to New York, mm-hmm. I think is a really great play, obviously on the the city that never sleeps because this is happening. Uh, you know, he goes to the the jazz club and that's already at like bar close. So that's yeah. like one thirty two o'clock. And then now he's got to yeah, go across town to this costume shop of, uh, that was owned by a patient, but now is owned by a sex trafficker. Um, but still operating the costume shop as is, I suppose. Yeah. Um, it's yeah. So it's like it, you know, kind of bounces around mm-hmm. uh, in that way, and then because by the time he gets home, it's four thirty a.m. So mm-hmm. like he literally has an all nighter for this. Yeah. Um, that, but yeah. So let's talk about the uh, the sex orgy ritual happenings. Fidelio, uh, Fidelio, Fide- so, I think it's Fidelio, isn't Fidelio, it? Fidelio, yeah. yes. Um, and I did uh, some linguistics research. Ooh, um, nerd. and um, it has it's a it's an Italian word. Um, and it comes from the Latin root fidel, which ah. is faithful, <gasps> honest. Ah, Kubrick. Which is where infidelity comes from. Yeah, same root word. Um, so that's where uh, because the the password was something else in the book and he mm-hmm. changed it to Fidelio for this reason. Very cheeky. Very and then cheeky. it goes in with the Venetian uh, masquerade masks, yeah. uh, Italian, uh, which is kind of a nod to um, the book because in the book it takes place during Mardi Gras season. Yeah. Uh, versus in this it is around Christmas, but then they kind of have the more Mardi Gras style masks. I see, which is lucky for him because if it was Halloween and he showed up in like a pirate costume or something like that, that would have been super embarrassing. I mean, he got really <laughs> lucky, even though they obviously it's like what like, it's a costume party and he's there in like a sheet bed sheet ghost costume. <laughs> yeah, you know he he blends in the best he can, but he's already getting tipped off, which yeah. I found interesting. That's like. They even know he shows up in know, a cab, and from that well, they're like, "What?" You know. <laughs> well, the cab part, but then even I wonder if, like, even if they didn't know about the cab at first, mm-hmm. uh, because they they don't know about that until the the help eventually like uh, uh goes and tells them. But yeah. like, if they didn't know that, it's interesting that they would know just by like his body language, like because they yeah. are this sex cult thing going on. 
they know each other by their body. So like they instantly even know that just by his body language that he's yeah. not one of them. That's that's kind of interesting to me. Yeah, I love this whole sequence. When he shows up, uh, there is just immediate sense of of unease. Um, I think he was the, also late. They already started the ritual. How awkward. That's why I, I I like to think that he was fashionably late though. He's like I don't want to you know I, I <laughs> he wants to skip over the foreplay. He just wants to get right into the action. Uh, but yeah, I love that this entire sequence is sort of underlined with this very droning monotonous score which i do believe is like speech like reversed uh is kind of this chant going on in the background i I think is really fascinating sure yeah obviously by modern standpoints it's not the most like you know pearl clutching thing in the world but you know lest we forget this isn't hardcore porn this is a movie distributed by like warner brothers you know like this is something that you would go see in the theaters this isn't you know Pornhub or anything like that but i think for a, a major motion picture uh, I, I think that this film is about as graphic as it probably likely could be at the time, especially with these stars, knowing that Nicole Kidman and Tom Cruise were big stars. It's like, yeah, Warner Brothers made a movie where there's this big sex, you know, 15 minute sex, you know, orgy cult in the middle of it. I think it's pretty cool, even if it is a little tame for modern standpoint. I think the fact that Kubrick was still able to put this into the movie and the fact that it is as you know extended as it is to where nothing really happens he gets called out and then he leaves but most of the actual experience is him just kind of walking around and just seeing people have sex oh yeah i mean i didn't need anything like more hardcore from this because Mm -hmm. it serves the purpose of the film is like again they're not even really into the actual sexual acts themselves they're into the ideas of it so when you're watching him wander around uh the happenings of this uh, mm-hmm. party uh, a lot of it is people crowded around two people fucking and watching yeah. there's a lot of voyeurism happening mm-hmm. um and you see some different dynamics here and there and like again if i wanted to like hang out in the party more i kind of wanted to see like the different angles that people are at because like obviously there's the rooms where people yeah. are just straight fucking but then there's another there's room where be a pe- break room there's got to be one where people are like fuck me like there's a break room <laughs> I um i'm tired i'm th- beat there, there's a room where people are just dancing naked yeah. they're not having sex in that room they were literally just in there dancing and there's and gotta be a snack room too there's gotta, gotta be ha- but you just like tip up the mask and just kind of shove it in there <laughs> i mean that i mean i'm also i just got i want to see like the different uh depictions of these people uh having these like group intimacy type of things like yeah well if there's a room where people are just ha- naked having meaningful conversation Aww. like you know and like hop around to like some of these conversations i just yeah. think there's like they you know for some of this little seeds not that quite were as planted, scary is it though <laughs> no, uh, <laughs> the sex cult talking it out <laughs> but is it supposed to be because that's what we get to at the end where mm. it's like oh was the sex cult you know the ones following him and making the things around him happen or was it completely unrelated and they are literally just people that love to have freaky sex together you know are they even supposed to be scary you know so it's like uh you know could uh, i i just kind of wanted to i want i wanted to know more yeah. i wanted to know more about this you know as as he wanted to but uh yeah yeah i think Kubrick gives us enough to where it still is scary it's still um unnerving and i think had it you know made the sex cult a little bit more humanistic i think some of the ambiguity would be lost because i do like when at the end of the, of the film victor kind of confronts him about what happened and he is like no she 
had a drug overdose like the the other guy we sent him home like he's trying to plead his case but i think that kubrick gives the audience enough wiggle room that we can still wonder well did is he lying did he actually kill those people or you know was he just scared that tom cruise is going to ruin the sex cult and he's like no i worked so hard to build this up you know we'll just keep him quiet you know uh, uh, just ship his friend away i i i think the movie is obviously very ambiguous for that reason um see that's that's where i had i did have a little criticism i think it i think it it is ambiguous but at the same time i think it does kind of lean in a in a certain degree um because you know obviously when we're introduced to Ziggler it's him having Tom come up to make sure someone isn't dead so he's not implicated in something like that um so it, it's very easy to to assume that it could be uh him just lying and orchestrating mm-hmm. and like in this scene uh, that see this like long explanation scene um feels like the the I don't need this explanation like how you felt in Saltburn because I can I I'm already having these assumptions like before he uh, lays all that out i'm already having these assumptions you're fully in the like the sex cold is chill there's Mm -hmm. nothing malicious going on because i think that there Mm -hmm. is definitely a perspective particularly in that early overdose scene where you could read it and i'm surprised to hear you say this because you're usually the mr tin no i'm I'm on i'm on i'm on the other side no i i don't believe that okay no 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 see that's my thing but I think him explaining it and laying it all out makes it me like, why would you do all this? Like go through this explanation other than at the very end where he's just like, some people die, but you already know that. And the way he says that is, you know, that rich people like us, we can do these things and get away with it. So no, it didn't happen. So that's, so him explaining the whole thing out is like, Oh no, no, you're, you're totally bullshit now. Like before you said anything, I could have went either way. I could have went either way that it is unrelated. Uh, it is set up. I still up. think, though, With that him spelling it out, that makes me go, okay, no, you are lying. I, that is bullshit. Well, from his point of view, uh, and if I had to say, I do think that the rich people sex cult did do the murder. But I do think that there is enough evidence to prove the opposite. Because it, from his point of view, if nothing happened, nothing, you know, there's no foul play. Tom Cruise knows about this crazy sex cult thing. You don't want him going out there and telling everybody about it. So it just so happened that somebody at the party is dead, did actually over uh, overdose. And like he said, he's like, we just wanted to scare you. And, and you know, that that whole thing was was a farce like it was you know it was pretend oh, well yeah and, and he so, even questions it he's like why would you do call do a charade about this you know so it's like yeah. he's he's there so it's like i i think in, him saying that though it could be read as him saying like you know shit does happen i guess it does it would be a shame if something else had to happen again you like know? you're 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 making yourself seem suspicious no by <laughs> making yourself yeah like try to be non-suspicious like it's like you're making yourself more suspicious well i uh, think it so is it's like, no i, I see uh, i think that's yeah, where we're diverging <laughs> i don't think he's trying to be unsuspicious i think that he is like nothing did happen but it's something no could, it's, you it's, know, it's it's yeah. the literal like yeah. how they keep having these hey this is between us so it's like he's yeah. saying it in code essentially yeah. as you know rich people do and he's like kind of just being like hey if you can just get in line with you know and like just mm-hmm. don't be weird about it then yeah. let's just all do our thing and like whatever which you is know? why it's like that early overdose scene i really love too because like you were talking about it is kind of treading the waters i i think it could be read that way that he 
brings up the doctor to save this girl, this prostitute who is overdosing and, you know, just trying to be like, is he cool with this? Well, if he's not cool with this, he's certainly not going to be cool with the other stuff. 100%. Um, the thing that I do find ambiguous, though, that I do like, and uh, on the second watch, I was kind of like, uh, do you have any um, uh, theories on that Alice was at the sex cult party? Because with her, she's like, she's sleeping with the mask on the pillow. Mm -hmm. How did she, whenever he comes home and she tells him about the dream she just had yeah. about, oh, people were watching me fuck and I was fucking all these people. Mm -hmm. And she made it sound like a nightmare when she's literally describing where he just came from. So it's like, is there any, do you think there's any possibility that she was also there? I think that there is certainly um, a possibility. Um, I would say that she definitely, I think she definitely knows about it. And that's and why she's she, so chill with it at the end. I, I think that she definitely is in the know for sure. And I, I think that 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 testing scene that we were talking about earlier or that dancing scene, you know, the homie that she was dancing with, he could be involved in it too. They could be friends from all that mm. kind of thing. And that's why they're so close with dancing mm. with each other. She's been like, well, this ain't in nothing. You know, this is tantalizing the fact that we're dancing this closely and my husband's in the other room, but he doesn't know about all of this. So I think it's totally um, plausible. I know a lot of people read the ending of the film to where she says like, like let's go fuck and then like the little girl is like off in the the background there's some people who read that they have like somehow abandoned or like sacrificed the little girl to like the sex cult meaning like oh you can human traffic her because of what's uh, happening in, in, in the film but mm. we can just be or each other which see i also i don't know if i i jive with that alice i can i can understand that but i don't see the need for them to want to dispel the kid. I think oh. it's far more interesting if she is in it and is like, I want to get my husband into like, it, but I don't know if that he's into it. That's yet, what I was know? wondering. I was yeah. like, I was like, did Alice somehow like orchestrate this elaborate thing for her husband to find the sex cold on his own rather no. than her tell him about it, be like, oh, he just kind of needs to experience it. So she like kind of sets in motion. Like, is that what she was getting at when they were stoned? Yeah. I mean, she's like, I yeah. need to piss him off. So he goes yeah. out tonight. Well, and that, if he that, goes out tonight, yeah. he's get which would be yeah. like, that's like Joker levels of uh, planning almost, yeah. but yeah. it's a possibility. I never really thought too much anything about the daughter, honestly. Like, the daughter, yeah. to me, is, like, she literally is there and has no personality because she is just supposed to be the perfect daughter. She's an accessory in their marriage that mm -hmm. is supposed to be a good thing for them. They're, you know, they have this, you know, nice apartment. He's obviously makes good money, and they have this perfect little daughter together. Their life is perfect. What else do they need? Yeah. Uh, when it's entirely okay to want more, they obviously kind of... Uh, fall into this uh, banality of life that it's like, yeah, they're living a good life, but they're kind of bored and they yeah. wish they could, you know, have these things to spice stuff up. And like, obviously what parent obviously doesn't have that moment at some point. Um, so like, I never thought anything about, but then again, but then like, I didn't really think about with uh, Millich and his daughter and the sex trafficking stuff. Um, I, but I, I never really thought too much about the daughter. Yeah. I, I personally don't think that the film is ending with her getting thrown into some sex ring. That would be tragic. I, I think it is more exactly what you're saying that she represents this kind of perfect, uh, heteronormative nuclear family, but also the fact that throughout the entire film, we cut back to what's happening at 
the house, but there's no, <clears throat> there's nothing being revealed by the plot or anything like that. We're just continually cutting back to Alice is making them food. Alice is getting them ready. Alice is teaching them fucking mathematics. You know, like it's just her being a mom. Meanwhile, fucking Dr. Tom Cruise is out on the town going to these crazy sex orgies while she's home taking care of the kids. So I think that not only is it representative of what they have at home, but it's uh, precisely because of that, that it's sort of driving this wedge between the two of them. Yeah. I, I like the the equally wild possibilities that either A, she did, she's in the sex cult and she helped organize things and she wanted to get him to the, the horny side. Or Good for her, a or, lot of planning, a lot of planning, or she um is not, but she I like what you said, like maybe she is aware of the sex cult, mm-hmm. um and because the other theories that I saw were people saying that like she oh, wants to she, get in, <laughs> well no that no that she did actually cheat on him like on that cruise, oh, I see. like yeah. that 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 whole thing is real, yeah um not maybe that it happened the way that Tom Cruise saw it in his head, but did she actually cheat on him, yeah and then the and then her allowing him to go on this like little horny journey is her like kind of um like paying that back to him to mm-hmm. be like okay now you need to for us to get on the same page of our sexual desire stuff i need you to you know get into whatever horny shenanigans that you need to get into so that way we can be on the same page now mm-hmm. and because there's the thing at the end too where she says uh, we should be grateful we managed to survive all our adventures whether they're real or only a dream so it's basically her saying like hey if you you went on this thing i have spicy thoughts uh i also cheated on you with the the cruise captain guy yeah like whatever like hey what whatever is real whatever is connected whatever mm-hmm. is not like we were now we are yeah. finally on the same page well i think then that's the real question is after this film is over and their eyes have been theoretically uh, wide open now like are they a part of the sex cult like did they did they get in you know was this an audition for them or are they like no you fucked it day one you're not getting in dude <laughs> you can't keep a secret at all he told no. you not to talk to anybody immediately went and talked to alan cummings <laughs> no 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 they they are not invited in unfortunately they they did uh fuck up some of the confidentiality which is dangerous in in sexual uh parties and stuff because you know physical yeah. stuff uh stds diseases they they didn't get screened properly before they went to this ritual, mm-hmm. uh, and that's uh, that's uh, that's sus. We don't like that in our sex cults. Yeah. So they're like, okay, you saw what you saw. Don't tell anybody, but go figure out your own kinky stuff on yeah. your own time now. <laughs> yeah, I I also don't. I think their membership card will be denied, unfortunately. But I I agree that I think after this, their life as far as sexually will be, you know much more liberated and hopefully kind of fulfilling than it was when we first meet them. I think they're, I think they're off to a, like, this is a reset. This is, they're going to go get their vows renewed and, and they're, they're going to have a good life now. I think they deserve it. I I honestly do think so. Um, so that's why I also wouldn't put this in the eat the rich category because I don't think they're being targeted for their richness in any capacity in Mm -hmm. this. It is kind of more just like, Hey, these are rich people that also still have issues uh, as well. Like, you know, uh, you know, you either get more money or you get more sex. Like, that's really the only uh, ways you can go in a relationship here, Um, you Mm -hmm. know. But uh, 
uh, yeah, uh, were there any uh, specific uh, set pieces or uh, we really haven't gotten to talk about uh, the filmmaking aspects of this yeah. uh, film. <clears throat> um, obviously, it's super gorgeous. I really like the um, the uh, the the spectrum it's always like it's either a it's super warm with all these lights and like you know mm-hmm. uh inviting colors and like kind of feels very cozy yeah or there's this like very dark blue that is very off-putting and kind of uncomfortable in especially a way. uh in their bedroom in their bedroom or is it like in the middle where it's like they're the unworld is like untouched by anything it's like mm-hmm. it's like plain just like right in the middle so there's like not like a lot of in-betweens in them they're kind of in each of those three places yeah. uh, which i think is really cool like there literally is christmas lights in at least half this film yeah christmas lights a lot of lamps uh a lot of uh those kind of nighttime um rear projection shots that there's that shot of tom cruise walking through the streets and it's that it's a pretty like well-known uh, Stanley Kubrick move. It's like this reverse kind of like trucking shot, just like following someone walk. And there's a rear projection uh, shot in this. So I love that Kubrick is able to implement a lot of his style in this film, but uh, just a, a, a little tweak to using uh, the lighting, like you were talking about using um, like the, the Christmas lights, the moon lights, the, the, the city street lights, you know, uh, neon signs, all of these kind of things to illuminate, you know, these characters. Going back to what I was saying, it just gives it a real vibe. This movie is just a, a real, just gorgeous movie to look at. I love the way that, um, I love the way that everything in the mansions is shot, uh, particularly the first party that we go to and then um, the confrontation between um, Tom Cruise's character uh, and his his uh, rich buddy at like a uh, Victor at like the billiards table. Um, uh, Kubrick in, is able to like move the camera in a similar way uh, to kind of emulate the party scene from earlier, especially when like Cruise um, arrives at the mansion uh, after being summoned. Uh, it's kind of hard to explain, I guess, in a podcast. Uh, it's not a a visual medium, but uh, I love the way that uh, Kubrick is able to move the the camera in and around the space, capturing these conversations in this party. Oh yeah, I feel like um you know doing the the elaborate like you know hand built sets you know mm-hmm. uh make it feel uh you know you have that control you can kind of do some more of these uh flares and uh things like that like uh, I really like uh, we get the rear projection in the cab as well yeah uh you know very classic and it's like hey that's uh that's really cool uh, I really like Jocelyn Jocelyn Pook's um score here yeah. um her first film score imagine imagine doing uh Stanley Kubrick's last film as your debut Madness. film score it's such a great score it's so muted and um uh, simple it's just mostly like the piano you know I, I i love how minimalist it is yeah they they would be brought back in later to do um the uh Stanley kubrick uh documentary mm-hmm. a life in pictures and um, they also did uh gangs of new york for martin oh, scorsese look at that uh, which is a uh, pretty neat and i really like um that this film kind of does like how Hitchcock does a lot where he does some of its score, but some of it, the score is provided by, you know, something in the scene. So Mm -hmm. at the sex orgy, it is Nick Nightingale on the piano, which is hilarious because then when they unmask him and are like putting him on Mm -hmm. the spot, 
Nick is playing through that because Nick has to show like, got to go on, man. Nick's yeah. like, I don't know this don't guy. Know that fucking I have guy. to <laughs> play it. So he's literally playing the the background behind yeah. his trial, which is super funny. But using that as, you know, the scoring for the film, yeah. um, I think is really cool. Um, but yeah, so are there any specific uh, like conversations? Because we don't really have set pieces in this, I suppose. Um, but is there anything that uh, kind of really stood out to you on this rewatch? Um, yeah, the initial confrontation between um, uh, uh, Cruz and uh, Alice, uh, the, the Bill and Alice. Uh, I keep changing the <laughs> character names and the, the actor names between Bill and Alice and them talking and this initial kind of breakthrough between the two of them, I, I think is uh is is really fascinating one of the few scenes where again you get two characters who are sitting and like exchanging ideas and talking because most of this movie is just kind of tom cruise like wandering in and around new york and uh talking to people that he just doesn't really expose a lot of himself you know it is this idea of this person um i think i i really loved the sequence where he visits the uh the the prostitutes friend or their roommate or whatever and she like lies to him and says oh she got diagnosed with aids you better not see her anymore you know uh and uh, i love that he switches from this like very flirty uh charismatic kind of personality that he came into it with and then shifts almost to like that kind of doctor oh, i'm sorry to hear about that like very cold and you know removed but i think that there's also like a lot of fear in that because he knows that she's that she's lying and so i i just think that cruz's performance in that scene is really great how he totally switches his like uh disposition you know on a dime yeah, it's uh, it's kind of similar how we mentioned in a uh, uh, Saltburn oh, where we God. have a where we have a guy turning into like the femme fatale like yeah. in that one scene where he is like this is where he is like kind of feeling himself mm-hmm. at this point he's like ooh let me use this to like get you know the information from that roommate yeah um I, it was definitely fascinating uh, I paid attention to the finale a lot more. Um, again, like the way that it's edited is fascinating. At the so, toy store or in the billiards so room? The, so the, he, he returns, uh, he, he gets in bed and he's crying to Alice. Okay. Um, and he, you know, she wakes up and he yeah. goes, okay, I'll tell you everything. And when we cut, we cut back to Alice's face. It, the daylight is coming in. So they've presumably been talking about this for hours and we yeah. don't even see that conversation. At least of, for like two or three hours. Like, yeah. so we don't see, you know how how truthful and honest like did he tell completely everything that i mean i'd assume so over that amount of time uh but we don't really get to see that we just see her reaction from it Mm -hmm. and then we don't and then we don't get a follow-up you know because then it cuts to them at the toy store and then them having that resolution in the toy store i think is uh an interesting use of the daughter because they are in a toy store it is christmas people are christmas shopping mm-hmm. with their families it's supposed to be all wholesome yeah. they're with their daughter and they are having the resolution to this very serious uh and taboo conversation they're doing it in public yeah. in this very wholesome setting <clears throat> and you know they have to keep stopping whenever yeah. the daughter comes over and, like they stop what they're saying oh mm-hmm. hey yeah that's that's cute and then they yeah. she runs away and they continue the conversation uh i think the way that um the this all the way through the finale um is uh really well uh edited and it uh i don't know just uh really worked for me on this uh, time around and just the the last uh declaration of you know there's something really important we should do uh as soon as possible what 
fuck yeah, credits. credits yeah it's credits <laughs> yeah i think that again kubrick and we can kind of wrap this into final thoughts i don't think that kubrick gets enough credit for some of the humor that is in a lot of his films obviously full metal jacket is one um the first half of that with arlie emery is is noted for being very funny but even some of the darkest moments in the shining are fucking hilarious because of nicholson's performance and i think that this movie is the same i think that there is a lot of humor to be found in it but i also think that there um, is a lot to be found uh in commentary regarding heteronormativity, what marriage looks like, what gender roles look like, what female sexuality looks like, what class looks like. You know, I, I, I just feel like that he is dealing with so much stuff in this movie. It's a shame that it just sort of gets chalked up be, to being the rich people sex cult movie to where I think that this film is about so much more. And to limit it to that, I, I would argue you're almost kind of putting yourself like in Bill's point of view. You're just kind of regressing this film to not being uh, about what I think it's that it is about being about um, all of the themes that I had just mentioned. But I think the performances are fantastic. I think Kubrick is able to um, uh, put his directorial flair on things. This feels like a very Kubrick movie. Uh, I love watching it from a visual perspective, uh, but also the score and the sound of everything for me. So out of five, I guess, masks, is that what we're we're doing today? Sure, five masks. Out of five masks, this is a five-banger for me. I think it's just a really really excellent movie that is is minimalist it doesn't overstay it's welcome despite the runtime but it just kind of it drones on in a really like dreamlike way i just I, yeah this the movie i just find more to like about it the more and more um that i watch his films so i don't think that it is um my favorite kubrick movie the the shining is still up there as well as uh, some others but i think kubrick went out on a good note this is a really terrific film uh yeah, I bumped my score up a smidge. Um, it's not quite. It's it's more than a seven, but it's not quite an eight. So mm-hmm. it's like a seven point five, so like a three point seven five, I, I suppose. See. Yeah. Um, but I'll have to do three point five on Letterbox because that's how it works. That's fair. Um, I don't know. Maybe I'll give it the four star. We'll see how I'm feeling in an hour or so. <laughs> uh, we'll see how I feel a little bit later. Um, but uh, yeah, I really like this. Again, I don't like love it. Um, you said this isn't three and a half is hot mess for you. This is oh, a hot mess. Well, no, this is not a hot mess. Not every three point five is a hot mess, oh, I but see. most hot messes are three point five. I see. I see. I see I it's see. more that way. I see. Um. So yeah, because I wouldn't call this a hot mess. This is actually pretty tidy. Yeah. Uh, for how sprawling it is. Mm-hmm. Um. If anything, I would take a note. Like you know, this is three hours and uh, two hours and forty minutes. Let's go the full three. Uh, let me get a little bit of uh, Alice's uh, mm-hmm. journey in this. I think we don't. I think obviously, yes, it helps the ambiguity, and she didn't have as much of a ways to go as Bill did. Yeah. So I think it makes sense on why Bill sure. has a majority of the screen time. But you know, it could have been fun to kind of sprinkle in some like little scenes of just like, what's she doing? You know, yeah. I don't know. Like, what's she doing? I again could have just hung out at the sex orgy party a little bit longer. Yeah. Um. And as far as like, again, like as far as this being an erotic thriller for the month, um, I don't even find it all that thrilling. Like I don't find that very scary. Like there's a mystery, mm-hmm. but I don't find it very scary. It's more I like I 
felt the more fantastical element yeah. of this. So it's like this. It's, it's, it's still a noir. It's fantastical. And obviously there are some murders, but it's not as thrilling either. I will say that there's uh, not many scenes of horror in this. It's pretty light on that. But that scene where he is at the orgy and they're like, hey, your cab driver wants to talk to you. And then he walks into that room and everybody is turned around looking right at him. That shot is just fucking chills. It's so, oh, it's it's eerie. so un- uh, yeah, eerie is the perfect yeah. word for it. Yeah. So, so yeah, that's about where I'm sitting. Um, but I did, I will say like I was, uh, not excited for my rewatch, mm. but then I felt, I found more joy out of it. Now, whenever I look forward to it, I can like, if I'm going to rewatch again, like now I can see myself being like, yeah, I'll give it another watch here, here in a year or so, nice. or maybe even sooner than that, you know, but like I, I was Christmas time. Does this have to be watched at Christmas time for you? Is this, is this going to enter in the rotation? I, think, I, I mean, I think the next time Throw it on be... at the bar, man. Ooh, I I think we ha- I think we have put it on at the bar before. Or I think I came in like and we were like halfway through it, like I whenever I came in for my shift. Um, but I definitely want to try and catch it in theaters. Oh, um, yeah, I have cool. not gotten to see it in theaters. Both times I've been at home. So uh, the next time one of the rep theaters out here are showing it, uh, we'll have to well make a night of it. Mm-hmm. All right. So let's see what other movies were on the brain while we were discussing Eyes Wide Shut. movie math time it's time for movies uh this one was a little difficult for me i had to really scrounge and in fact you even gave me one of the movies in my <laughs> equation uh, i was like oh that's a good pull <laughs> so uh i have after hours uh speaking of martin scorsese another uh kind of odyssey inspired film uh about a guy also just walking through new york and getting into fucking trouble uh it's really terrific film uh one of my favorite and i would say one of the more slept on uh scorsese films uh divided by society divided because i'm taking a part of society which is rich people be fucking man uh rich people be fucking yeah it's not as uh, eyes wide shut is not as goopy or sticky as that movie is uh but still the idea of it being a mystery about what is going on and what's going on rich people be fucking yeah, there's a there's a little bit of shunting going on at the uh, sex orgy party in this one, and uh, yeah, I I gave you after hours because I haven't seen it, but it like was popping up whenever I was yeah. like trying to get a little bit of an idea for mine because yeah. uh, it took me a minute, but I also stayed a little bit on the more simpler side. Uh, I have Dress to Kill, uh, obviously uh, Brian De Palma, no stranger to the game. We'll be talking to Palma next week. Oh yeah, uh, very excited for that. But uh, Dress to Kill is another one of his, and it deals with these desires of infidelity mm-hmm. uh well not in, well infidelity but also like even taking it a step further with it kind of like being this like ooh stranger rape me in public but i like it kind of scenario mm-hmm. no spoilers uh, so her, i also haven't seen this one oh you're in for you're in for a treat uh the ending uh does not hold up by today's standards ah, but that's okay uh, I, I know about the ending but it's similar yeah. to a psycho yeah, uh yeah. kind of reveal in a, a way but a uh, really great style, the look, the uh, kind of tracking noir vibe of Dress to Kill because then you later follow a sex worker and a uh, the kid of uh, someone's mom that gets murdered and they are the ones that go on this. So they're this like mm. ragtag, you know, odd pairing, not couple because he's a teenager, but yeah. pairing 
um, and uh, they solve this mystery. Uh, so a lot of similarities. And then one that I didn't think of whenever, and maybe I didn't realize it because I had watched this film before I saw Eyes Wide Shut, mm-hmm. but Under the Silver Lake is literally just the L.A. version. Like, there's a lot of similarities uh, in I mean, Andrew Garfield's character has different motivations because he's like he's more enraptured by somebody and that kind of desire versus mm-hmm. somebody they, that he's already married to. Um, it's not as fant like it does have elements of like fantasy, but it's presented more plainly, like not as romantic looking as mm. Eyes Wide Shut. Have you seen Under the Silver Lake? I have seen Under the Silver Lake. Uh, I get more Vertigo vibes from that movie than Eyes Wide Shut, the mm. Hitchcock Vertigo. Uh, I, I, I think that film is, is seen pretty inspired by, but I do think uh, Eyes Wide Shut is an interesting comparison as well. Like, I, I want, because <clears> I didn't really like Under the Silver Lake. Now that I've seen Eyes Wide Shut, I wonder if I watch it and I like it a little bit more. I would watch Vertigo before you watch it because I think it is very directly an homage to that. Oh, film. okay. Yeah. Well, it's a similar way though, like uh, Andrew Garfield's character, like kind of just keeps going deeper and deeper into this under yeah. uh, underness of LA. Like starts out at under a the sem- silver lake one. Under the silver lake, you know, goes starts out at you know goes to one party and then he ends up at Hollywood Forever, yeah. which then takes him to a secret cave party, which yeah. then takes him to like you know. So uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. the the structure is kind of similar in that way. Uh, also, if you want some more Brian De Palma talk, uh, we also uh, exchange some Brian De Palma recommendations for watching the watch list uh, over on Patreon. Yes, well, that'll be like our continuation because that'll be for next month's uh, watching the watch list. Yes. But I was already going to be burning through plenty of De Palmas that I have not seen this month. But uh, next week, uh, he makes his debut here on the show with Body Double. Oh, yeah. Um. Well, we did Par- Family of the Paradise, but again, pre-Garrett. We'll, we'll do a commentary for that one as well. And we're <laughs> definitely going to do, yeah, Family of the Paradise again at some point because that yeah. was just like in a medley episode I did by myself. We might just do a main feed episode for that at some point because, yeah. I mean, we got to. We have to. Uh, so stoked for that. Where can the people find you, Garrett? Uh, you guys can follow me over on Twitter, Letterboxd, and TikTok at Garrett McDowell. Uh, I've also got another podcast that is a Star Wars podcast with new episodes every Thursday. Uh, it's called Scum and Villainy. And you can find me at the usual places at underscore daddy disco, um, Instagram, TikTok, Letterboxd. Um, you can uh, hear me over on Pod and Pendulum talking House of Frankenstein. You can hear me on What a Scream podcast talking found footage films. And uh, and make sure, again, if you have not checked out the Patreon, patreon.com slash Spectre Cinema. But now go ahead and do it for this week's episode of the Spectre Cinema Club. New episodes drop every Tuesday. Subscribe to not miss a thing. You can follow us on social media at Spectre Cinema on Twitter, Instagram, and TikTok. And if you're listening on Spotify or Apple Podcasts, leave us five stars, a nice little review. We appreciate you. But until next time, guys, stay lifted.